0: Carpenter's way. Why don't you guys get up on your feet? Find somebody tell them good morning. And all that is within me Christ. For you alone be glorified in you. Oh God, we
1: Well, good morning, Carpenters Way. How are you today? Good. It is so good to see you this morning, and uh, we are going to have a great time in 2 Samuel 7 this morning. So if you have brought your Bibles or you're on the Internet and you have one in your house, grab it, because we're going to take you to the Word there, and uh, we're glad that you're joining us. And uh, all of you who have flat bottom boats after all that rain last night, I'm glad you made it in safely. Uh, If you'd open your worship guide, there is a lot that we want to go through today, uh, a lot of announcements. Um, As you're opening them, I want to welcome those who are visiting with us, or if you're watching online, it's awfully uh, wonderful to have you with us, and our hope and our prayers you're encouraged, having studied the Word with us today and worshiping with us. Uh, If you have any questions, we'd love to answer them, and immediately after the service, I'll be up here, and and, uh, I'd love to shake your hands and hug your neck and answer questions you may have. I also want to mention, we put in the worship guide this week uh, uh, how to get connected with God and others at Carpenter's Way. And in that is a guide to our Bible studies, our uh, our groups, everything men's studies, women's studies, uh, Sunday study groups, small groups. We have one uh, on Thursday night. Chad does one for young adults. Julie and I have one Sunday night for newly marrieds or those who think they're newly married. So, uh, and we want you to be involved. That's how you get connected. This room is too large to really connect with everybody. So that's how we get connected outside of this room, and we encourage you to participate. So there's information in there on those Bible studies and where they're located. And if you look at those and you have more questions about that, again, you can contact our office or or us, and we would love to answer that. Speaking of that, a woman's Bible study is about to begin. It's in the middle of the worship guide under the post-game party information. About a few of those in the Times. And you can sign up for those in the welcome area at the woman's table. If you have questions, you can talk to Julie about those. But we want you to, uh, to take note of that. Also, on Sunday, September 23rd, is our uh, new members class. If you're interested in joining or you want more information on how we lead, all of the elders are there. Uh, all of our, our ministry leadership team will show up at some point, so you get to know them. Plus, we go through the doctrine of the church. Uh, and why we do things the way that we do them, we want to answer all those questions, and that's a good place to get them answered. Um, other thing I want to mention is in your, um, in your worship guide is a church officer nomination uh, piece of paper. Uh, we are right now, this is the last day, we've been doing this for three weeks, this is the last day to nominate your, uh, someone that you feel would be uh, good in a ministry role in our, as a church officer. The qualifications and the positions are in there on the front, on the back, it tells you who's serving now and who's going off. So prayerfully consider, if you have a name, you can drop it in the offering plate, give it to an elder or myself or uh, someone. It needs to be in today by the inn- before noon and, uh, because the elders will be meeting and going over those and beginning to pray over those. Um, right now, uh, one of our elders, Charles Kent, is going to come up, and he is going to talk with you about what's going on with our building renovation stuff. So Charles, why don't you come up, and then he is going to pray for our offering after that.
2: You know, I was so excited just to get up here so I could see you all from the front. Uh, 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 you all are so special to Beverly and I. Uh, you are truly family. Uh, for so long, we we hunted to be with God's people and God's word. He led us here, uh, and you have accepted us so lovingly from the very beginning. Uh Uh, You are God's children, and we all are family, and we thank you for accepting us in here. Uh, When I became an elder, uh, Kevin Hudson gave me a book to read on church finances. The gist of that book was that we should only spend money if it furthers God's Word uh, and God's kingdom. Uh, and we try to hold true to that. Uh, so <coughs> uh, our new building program, I believe, does just that. And let me give you two thoughts on that. One, it provides additional classrooms uh, that are much needed uh, as we're using all that we have right now. Our family is growing, and soon we'll need those additional rooms. Uh, actually, we need some now because some of our uh, rooms are overflowing. Uh, the other thing, as you know, is that additional bathrooms will also accomplish this further in God's Word and Kingdom by preventing us from being distracted from the lesson at, toward the end with full bladders and the thought that we're standing in line. Uh, I, I see some of you poised like a sprinter right at the end to head through one of those doors. Uh, So so we'll get to appreciate the whole lesson and not just the beginning. Now I want to tell you a story from Exodus 34 and and 36 uh, about building the tabernacle. Uh, The Lord instructs Moses to tell the people, and I quote, to take from among you an offering to the Lord, and this is important, whoever is of a generous heart. Let him bring the Lord's offering. And then he lists all the needs that they needed for the tabernacle. And in verse 21, we're told, And they came, everyone, and again, this is important, whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him. And they did. In in Exodus 36, 5 through 7, Moses was told by someone, one of the, builders or superintendents. The people bring much more than enough for doing the Lord's work. Isn't that wonderful? Which the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave the command, let neither man nor woman do anything more for the offering of the sanctuary. They had enough. Well, It will be an exciting moment, and it will happen in our church when we have the funds uh, uh, to do these improvements uh, for the above-mentioned reasons. So, you know, if you have extra monies uh, this year, uh, we pray that those with a willing heart who are moved by the Spirit will allot some of those extra monies uh, to this endeavor. And we started this in mid-year, and many budgets were already uh, made and full. Uh, and so, for those uh, uh, whose budgets were uh, already made and couldn't be changed, we pray that those with willing hearts will include the building program in uh, next year's budget, uh, so it begin. Gives you some time now to begin planning for that, and of course this is over and above uh, what we need to run the church—air uh, conditioning and lights and heat and things like that. So, so those—that budget uh, uh, is also very frugally done. So, we pray that you'll do that, uh, and and in the meantime, everyone can pray, uh, and and we just. We just ask that you do that, that you pray. Uh, now, uh, Mark, uh, sitting down here, gave me a, a little note, and it said, um, he told me he had good news and bad news. <laughs> the good news is, uh, really good news, is that we have enough money to pay for our own building program. Uh, The bad news is it's still in our pockets. (laughs) Uh, Could I ask the ushers to come forward, please? (laughs) And for you who are visiting... Uh, as Mark always uh, uh, tells us, uh, we, we don't ask you to give at all. Uh, uh, this offering is for our church to run the church, and uh, it's our obligation, and so you who are visiting uh, don't need to contribute at all. Uh, if you'll allow me, I'll pray. Oh, dear Lord, how we thank you for this place, uh, for all it means to each one of us. We thank you that we have been taught and led into accepting that we are family. We're brothers and sisters with Jesus, uh, and thus brothers and sisters with each other. Uh, it's a special place that you have created, and we thank you for it. Uh, and I do pray that you will, uh, that we will use these monies we collect this morning uh, as you would have us to. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Thank you. who made the world and everything in it since he is lord of heaven and earth he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs he himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need from one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth he decided beforehand when they should rise and fall and he determined their boundaries his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring.
0: Oh, I've heard a thousand stories of what they Think you're lying, but I heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never.
1: be seated. Kids are dismissed at this time through third grade. The rest of you are encouraged to grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel. I'll meet you in chapter 7 in a few moments. Jesus had just fed a large crowd of folks, uh, 5,000 men plus women and children, uh, when the crowd began to move to force him to become their king. That night, Jesus instructs the disciples to get into a boat and head to the other side of the lake where he promised to meet them. But in the middle of the night, a storm had arisen, and Jesus actually walked out to them, and they are freaked out. In fact, they think he's a ghost, Scripture tells us. The crowd the next morning, well, Jesus gets in the boat, and it tells us that immediately they found themselves on the other side. And the next morning as he's preaching, the crowd finds him. And they start talking about, Master, when did you decide to come to this side of the river or this lake? Why did you come over here? Why did you leave us? You didn't tell us. And this is Jesus' reply in John chapter 6, starting in verse 26. I tell you the truth. Whenever Jesus said, I tell you the truth, or in the King James, it's verily, verily, that's something you want to listen to because he's about to say what you're about to hear you're not going to like, but it is the bottom line. I tell you the truth. You only want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. Just a side note, the miracles that Jesus performed were not as much about making a blind guy to be able to see the beauty of creation or the person who limped through life or couldn't walk to walk through life as much as it was about proclaiming a message. In fact, Scripture tells us that the message through Jesus' miracles weren't so much... Uh, Yes, he was compassionate, it said, for those that were hurting, but it was the validation, it was the signpost that the Father had actually anointed his Son that we should listen to him. And that's not unfamiliar, it's not just something we connect. You remember at the baptism, the Father actually speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, remember that the disciples were confused and they started to set up... uh, set up uh, monuments to, to uh, uh, Moses and Elijah, who were there as well. And the Father speaks out of, out of heaven and says, That's my Son. You listen to Him. Jesus, over and over, through the miracles, the Father, through Him and the supernatural things He did, actually was validating that Jesus Christ was, in fact, divine and sent from the Father. And He just told them, this crowd, that you're not here because you're worshiping me or you're interested in why God sent me. You're here because you like the circus. Verse 27 You shouldn't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can now give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his repro- approval. You get it? His miracles were the seal of approval from the Father. The purpose, there's a point. And he sent him. The reason he puts a seal of approval on him is so that those who are listening to him will ask another question besides help me get over the flu, help me be cured of cancer, help me walk again. They would ask, if you have this kind of authority, deal with my ultimate problem, eternal life. And that's why Jesus is saying this. Here's where it gets prickly with these people, though. In John chapter 6, verse 28, they reply to him, we want to perform good works too. What should we do? They didn't really want Jesus, or to be like Jesus even, proclaiming salvation. They wanted to do the cool supernatural stuff that he did. They wanted to perform miracles of Jesus, so they demanded, despite him saying, you should understand the miracles, you should seek eternal life, not human, a better human life, despite saying that, their response is, we want to do what you do, what should we do? How do we learn? What's this magic? What's the mojo that makes this work? Jesus responds in verse 29. This is the only work that God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. I want to keep, you, keep that up there. I want you to concentrate on this. They want to do the magic. They want to perform miracles for lots of reasons, and I'm not saying they're all bad. They want to overcome Roman tyranny. They want to raise up the nation. They want to see people fed like he fed them. They want to know how he does these things so that they can do them. And Jesus' response is, you only want to do those things. You don't want to know why I do those things, why the Father has sent me. In fact, all the Father really wants from you is to believe in the one He has sent. They answered Him. Show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? That should take your breath away. I mean, I know it's just a story, but that should take your breath away. Because basically, they totally ignore what He just said, and they said, if you want us to believe you. Now they don't believe in Him anymore. What can you do? Jesus had never really asked them to do more, actually. They were not told to seek his miraculous power. They were told by God the Father to seek Jesus and believe in him for eternal life. So he says no, and they get mad. And this is their ultimate response to this conversation, jumping down from John 6 to verse 42. They then said to Jesus, "Isn't?" they said to each other, actually, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? Since the beginning of time, there have been those who wish to reduce Jesus' position of being God, divine. Philippians chapter 2 in the Greek is abundantly clear that Jesus was always God, always existed, is God, and will always be God. That there was never a break in that even when he was a man. He was fully man and fully God, and that never stopped. But there have always been those who want to reduce his divinity, reduce it down, because they want to do what Jesus did. The problem is, whether that's a good-hearted thing or not, Jesus said, that's not what your call is. That's not what you were asked. Jesus just told them that the miracles he did was to show the Father's validation on his ministry, and so they would listen to his message, and all that the Father was asking them to do is to believe. But man, they wanted to do so much more. They wanted to do it themselves. For those of you wondering, and I, I get asked this periodically, if the Bible ever claims that Jesus is Lord, I offer you Titus. This is what it says in Titus chapter 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. That's referring to Jesus, obviously. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. While we look forward with the hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. Pause, take a breath. If you're doubting whether Scripture ever says that Jesus is God, it's talking about Jesus as God and Savior. So it's talking about Jesus during that period of time, God and Savior, when he will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own children. Jesus had come to save these people from their sins. And as a result of that, their life would be transformed and a living testimony. What he offered them was eternal life, but they wanted to do more. And with that, let's pray. Father, I ask you this morning to speak to us from your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit that inhabits us would help us to understand that too often we go beyond what you ask. We want more than what you have for us because we don't see your work in our life. We want to experience so much more, and that's what these men were doing, and women, and this is what David does, and I pray that you would help us to be content in your task, content in your calling, content in your sovereignty, and your leadership for our lives, even if it's tiring. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Samuel 7, 1. When King David was settled in his palace... And the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. So I just want to pause there for a second. Just take a deep breath. I know that's a weird place to stop. But I want to bring you up to context. As you know, uh, David is going to rule the Hebrew nation for uh, 33 years as the king over the uh, 12 united tribes. Uh, he has been doing it at this point now for somewhere between 20, 20, uh, 20 to 25 years of that. He is well into that. And in that time, he's united the nation. He's made it, Jerusalem its capital. He's expanded the city, and a beautiful palace has been built. It's complete. The ark has been seated in the tabernacle that he built. There are no wars at this time, this text tells us. And it tells us that God is the one who gave them peace. Peace. There's even questions today about whether or not God's actively involved in our lives, and you clearly see that in in today's text. God brought peace, it says, by quieting the enemies of David, by quieting the enemies of Israel. So they're in, uh, Jerusalem is is basically Camelot for the moment, and you get the sense that David is sitting and reflecting on what he should do next for the Lord. Verse 2, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I'm living in this beautiful cedar palace, But the ark of God is out there in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, go ahead and do whatever you have in mind for the Lord is with you. This is the first time we hear about Nathan. Uh, As you know or may not know, although Nathan isn't the only prophet at this time, Nathan is the prophet that God seems, at least according to Scripture, seems to uh, communicate mostly with David on behalf of the Lord. As Samuel was to Saul, Nathan will be to David. And you're going to see more of him in the coming weeks as we continue through 2 Samuel. As David should do before he makes a major move, like building a tabernacle, he goes to Nathan. You remember when David, is, man, when David is trusting in the Lord, he always asks God, should I go to war? He goes to the prophet and asks for advice and counsel. Uh, he prays to the Lord himself, but he always does that when he's, when he's wanting to do God's work. And he wants to do it here, and he goes to Nathan, and Nathan's response is, go for it, bro. God's with you. He's proud of you. Do it. Unfortunately, verse 4 says that same night, so the same night David asked, and Nathan gave him his approval, the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. So I want to pause for a second. I want you to understand that when David comes to Nathan, Nathan doesn't speak on behalf of the Lord. A prophet, every word out of a prophet's mouth is not the word of the Lord. When a prophet of the Old Testament was, ha- was anointed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would come upon them, and they would say, Thus saith the Lord, this is what the Lord says, because they were literally speaking the very words of God. When Nathan responds to David, sure, go for it. God's on your side. Nathan is not speaking as a prophet. He's speaking as the counselor of David. But boy, that's about to change. You go and tell my servant David that this is what the Lord has declared as opposed to what you declared. <laughs> this, is such a, this is such a great question. I love this question. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? If, if God ever approaches you and asks that question, you can be sure that what's about to follow is not your, what you want to hear. God's a little sarcastic. I have never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I've always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders. There's not one of the 12 leaders ever since Israel or since Egypt that I ever said I need a tent. He goes on, the shepherds of my people Israel either. I never told any of the elders of the nation of Israel that I need a tent. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? At this point, I think Nathan knows where this is going. God tells Nathan to ask David, did I ask you to build me a house? Am I not perfectly happy in a tent? Did I ever complain that I was doing too much walking in the wilderness? I mean, you know what I love about God? He's pretty darn practical. This is a great question. This is a fair question. Verse 8 Now you go, Nathan, and remember he's ta- God's talking to Nathan in this vision. Now go and say to my servant David, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. In other words, I never declared for you to build me a house. Here's what I have declared for you to do I took you from tending sheep in a pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all of your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name fam- as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth, and I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed the judges to rule my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. So take a breath, because the next sentence is really... Awesome. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you. Okay, that's a cool turn of phrase. David wants to make a house for God. God says, did I ever complain about not being in a cedar house? In fact, not only can you not make me a house, but I've done everything that's ever been done for all time. As it relates to you, I've done all the doing. And in fact, you don't need to build me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. You need to get this. What David is asking here isn't evil, it isn't bad. But like he did in last week's text, David forgets that his job is not to prop up God. His job is to be the child of God and serve him. David gets bored. And by the way, you're going to see that there's a couple times in the coming passages where David is not necessarily where he should be. Like, for instance, when he sleeps with Bathsheba, it says, In the season when kings are out at war, David's at home checking out the woman bathing next door. Whenever he gets bored, David starts to act. And, you know, I'm not saying it's a sin that he acted. I'm simply saying that God reminds David that it is actually God who has been doing all the doing that has ever been done in the nation and in and around David. Listen again. I took you, David, from tending in the sheep in the pasture, and I selected you to be the leader of my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have destroyed, that includes the caves. I have destroyed all of your enemies before your eyes. That's why you're at peace right now. And now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on earth, and we know that to be true. And I will provide a homeland for my people, Israel. And he goes on and on, and at the end he says, I will give you rest. I mean, the fact is, that God is telling David, I know that you forget, but I'm the one who did all the stuff that's been done. You sort of think that you've had this success, but the only reason you've had success is that I caused your success. In verse 11 through 16, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty. This is what it looks like. It will be a dynasty for kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will then make his kingdom strong. Now, I want to pause here for a second because I want to make it clear that what God is saying to David, not Mark saying to you or a theologian saying to a non-theologian, but I want to make it clear that what God is saying to David is you forget yourself. Everything that has been done, I'm the one who did it. God is clearly still involved in not just the overall picture of David. He's not just floating in heaven watching things happen as people free will it. God is intricately involved in every battle David fought, in every cave David stayed in, in even the defeat of Saul that looked like a human thing but was actually orchestrated by God. Those who think that God started it, wound it up, and that now free will runs things down here, and where God's kind of hoping for the best, that's not at all what this text says. This not only declares the sovereignty of God, it actually drills down to the very detail of David's life. Not just the nation of Israel, but David's life. God just told David that he would raise up now, now that he's done all the doing, he is doing the doing, he's got him at peace. He's recorded all of David's life. I pulled you out of a shepherd from being a shepherd and made you a king. Even when you went in the caves, I was in the cave with you. I killed your arch enemy Saul. I took care of that for you. All those things that have been done up to this point, even to the point of making peace with your enemies, I've done all that. And now God is clearly declaring that he is going to continue that because he's got a plan for his heirs and that God was, uh, it was going to raise up one of his descendants, and he had many children, and make his kingdom strong. What is incredible is we got to take a breath and think about who God is talking about here. Who is he talking about? Who's the guy that God's going to make the next king? Solomon who is Solomon's mother? Bathsheba. This is remarkable because David is married to Abigail. Remember the wise woman who kept him from killing the the sarcastic rude guy? I mean, he's got some smart wives. I mean, if it were me, if I were God, I'd pick Abigail to be the mother of the next king, but that's not what our God does. Our God picks the adultery, the, the one he commits adultery with. That's how full of grace and mercy our God is. That's how remarkable his plan is. Like picking Rahab in, uh, in the past, the harlot. Like picking Ruth, uh, the Moabitess. Like picking those, those people that were not above reproach that were not who you would expect God to pick. God picks these, and he uses them. And God, of all the sons that David will have, of all the wives that he has, God picks Bathsheba to be the mother of the next anointed one, the next king, and he will make him great. Listen to what God says about it. I will raise up one of your descendants. We just decided it was Solomon, we know that your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And get this next line. And if he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. So for those who begin to believe that God is depending on our free will and our obedience to accomplish his task, that's exactly the opposite of what this says about Solomon. God is saying that I've even got a plan if he's a sinful guy, and we all know he's a sinful guy. 900 and some wives tells you that the guy was not on his game, nor was he obedient to God, because God told him not to have many wives. And I think somewhere around 850 is too many. Not only that, but God instructs Solomon uh, There's lots of stuff. He's not supposed to marry outside of the Jewish nation. He does that in spades. Solomon was wise. He was wealthy, but he was a spiritual fool. But God knew he would be, and even in his conversation with David, even in his conversation, and this is what we call the Davidic Covenant, even in this covenant he makes with David he said, you want to build me a house well I've got good news, I have built you a house I am building you a house and I will continue to build this house and it's going to be through your son through your your heir, I'm going to choose one and when he sins it says if, but we all know it's a when when he sins, I'm still going to use him I'm going to correct him, I'm going to discipline him with a rod like any father would do that's pretty cool that is pretty amazing Verse fifteen, but my favor will not be taken from him, as I took it from Saul. Wow! So even if Solomon is an evil man, I'll forgive his sin, and I'm not going to take my anointing from him like I did Saul when I removed him from your sight. Verse sixteen. Why? Because your house and your kingdom will continue before uh, will continue before me before all time, and your throne will be secure forever. This, in theological circles, as I just mentioned, is referred to as the Davidic covenant. It was an unconditional promise God made to David who wanted to build him a house. Instead, God uses the moment to say, excuse me, son, you forget yourself. I have built your house, I am building your house, and I will continue to build your house until I secure your throne or your house forever. And what's he talking about there? He's talking about the one in the New Testament that at least a dozen times is referred to as the son of David, who is... Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah is referred to as the son of David, as you'll see in the gospel study that we do coming. Jesus is referred to as the son of David, and Jesus will sit on the throne of Israel for all of eternity. For those of us who believe in a literal millennial kingdom, we believe Jesus Christ will literally sit on David's throne over the nation for a thousand years on the earth. If you don't believe in a literal millennium, you believe that Jesus will carry David's throne in the new Jerusalem, which is heaven. The fact is that his throne will be secured forever. That means your heirs, your son. So you're going to have Solomon, and then you're going to have the others, and your four sons, and they're going to really mess the kingdom up. And the nation will one day be reunited when I come in on a white horse, and I will take the throne of David, and nobody will ever take it back from me. God is promising, making a covenant with David, now, let me clear up something for you. God isn't mad at David for wanting to build him a house or a temple. That's not what's happening here. How can I say that? 1 Kings 8. Look at 1 Kings 8, verses 18 and 19. It says, you wanted to build, a, uh, to build the temple to honor my name. Your intention was good, but you are not the one to do it. So, just, just to bring you back, full circle of where we started. Some people want to do the works of God for selfishness. Some people want to claim the authority of God so that they can win a political debate. That's what John 6 people did. Some people want to do more for God than he's asking because they feel like it's their task. There are two different motivations, but they're still the same problem. And I think it's important as we look at this to understand that just because we're God's kids, we're his called ones, with an important task, it does not mean we get to do everything we want. God has bigger things in store for David and for you and I that his or our feelings could not feel and our eyes could not see and our minds cannot even imagine. You have no idea. David had no idea what God was talking about. We look back and we see David and we see Solomon and we see Jesus and we see history. So we connect all the pieces. All David knows is God is going to establish his throne forever. And in David's mind, that means my family will sit on this throne forever. He doesn't understand that one of his grandsons, I think it's like seven later, is actually going to be the savior of the world, the king of kings. God had a sovereign plan that David couldn't see. David thinks he's restoring the kingdom. God says, I'm building an eternal kingdom through you. And that's important because if David builds, in context, you understand, or maybe you don't understand this, but in scriptural times, each community would have a God, especially if you were a seaside community. And you would build an altar to that God on the shore, and it would be huge. And the reason that they would do this is so that ships would go by and they would identify that God, and they would say, oh, that must be Philippi because that's the God of the Philippians. This must be whatever. And they would identify with that God. It was tradition in historical times for the king to prop up a God, marry himself with that divinity, and then actually have authority, a religious authority. God is saying to David, we're different in every facet. You don't need to prop me up in a cedar beautiful house. I have propped you up. I am propping you up. And I will always prop you up. And I want to remind you, child of God, that Christianity is the same way. Your salvation is not because you're American or because you're smart or because you grew up in a Christian home. You are the child of God by his calling, by his choosing, by his leading, by his drawing. And Matthew, Jesus said, Nobody comes to me unless the Father draws them. It is your free will. You have to bow the knee. All who come, whosoever will, come, uh, may come. In all of that, and in all the confusion, and all that we don't understand about election and free will, the truth is they're both taught in Scripture. But when people come to God, and they say, I found you, God goes, no, I found you before the foundation of the world. Well, how does that work? I'm not going to tell you that. But the truth is that just like David was called, we have to be careful, and, and didn't understand, that God had bigger things in store for him than just building a tabernacle and propping him up, we have to be careful as God's little ones to remember that we are the adopted children of God, not the daddy. It's important that we understand that we are the adopted kids. When a family rescues or adopts a horse that's been abused, the horse does not get to take ownership of the family. The horse doesn't have authority over the house. The horse has the benefits of all the wealth of the house and the food. But he's still just a horse. When God adopted David and rescued him, David doesn't get to take ownership of the kingdom. His obligation was to obey the responsibilities of the Mosaic Covenant, which is what we talked about last week, which is why David was supposed to every day study the law, the Torah, so that he could make sure that he, as the king of the nation, the human king, maintained the laws. We saw in last week's text, and they are connected, in last week's text, David wanted to do the right thing by moving the Ark of the Covenant into the city. He just didn't want to do it God's way. Boy, does that sound familiar. And in Pete Smart's Bible study class this morning, in our Bible studies last week, and in emails this week, some people are going, why would God kill Yuzah? That seems a little harsh. But when you disobey God, the cost is always harsh. It always hurts. Even when you repent and get right with God, the cost is great. But in this text, he's not doing something wrong. He's just forgetting that God didn't ask him to do that, and he should enjoy the peace that God has given him. When God adopted David and rescued him, he doesn't get to take ownership of the kingdom. I've already mentioned that. And in Psalm 8, David will say, when, he's, when it's a worship song, he is amazed, but he realizes that he as a human is actually not just not God now, but he's actually a little lower than the angels. That's important, because there are those who want to raise us up to a divine status, and we're not divine beings. We are human beings created and maintained at a little lower status than the angels. We can go to God who controls all that, but the truth is God does what He wants for His own purposes. We do not become little gods because we've been adopted. We're still humans, flawed, self-centered, overzealous, but deeply, deeply loved and called to draw near to our Creator, Dad deeply loved, but it doesn't change our DNA. It's through David's line a Savior would be born, who would be Christ the Lord, whom God Himself would give the name Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. So if you're not clear on who Jesus was, you just have to look at His name. Yeshua, Jesus, means Savior. Savior. His God-given name, Emmanuel, means God is with us. When people looked at Jesus, they were looking at the Savior of the world, God, because His name declared it. It didn't say one who was sent by God just, that's Messiah, but God Himself. And the New Testament teaches that over and over. Jesus was God, David was not. And in case you're unclear as to whether or not Jesus was in fact God while He walked upon the earth, His given name declares that He was. This is something that God promised would happen to David. David was receiving the blessings and calling of God. He was, in fact, doing it as it was happening to him. He did not need to find more things for the king uh, that he should do, like build him a house. God had it all worked out. So after God communicates with Nathan in verse 17, Nathan went back to David, and he told him everything the Lord had said in his vision. Now, just take a pause. We're going to go to verse 18. But if you want to know the difference between a man after God's heart and a man who has his own agenda while being a follower of God, look at the difference between the people in John 6 who after being confronted with their self-centeredness look at Jesus and say, you're just the son of Joseph. Do we not know his daddy? Why are you talking to us like this? Hey, if you really are who you say you are now, you want us to believe in you? Do another trick. Show us something else. That's what the self-centered follower of Jesus does. I want more. More. The man, who's a God after, um, the man whose heart longs for God's truth does this, verse 18. Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord and he prayed, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty, do you deal with everyone this way, O sovereign Lord? What more can, you, uh, can I say to you? You know what your servant is really like, Sovereign Lord. That's it. I've got secret things. You know those. Because of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and you have made uh, them known to your servant. How great you are, Sovereign Lord. There's no one like you. We have never even heard of another God like you. What other nation on earth is like your people Israel? What other nation, O God, have you redeemed from slavery to your own people? You made a great name for yourself when you redeemed your people in Egypt. You performed awesome miracles and drove out the nation and gods that stood in their way. You made Israel your very own people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, I am your servant. Do as you promised concerning me and my family. Confirm it as a promise that will last forever. And may your name be honored forever so that everyone will say, the Lord of heaven's armies is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David continue before you forever. O oh, Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, I have been bold enough to pray this prayer to you because you have revealed all this to your servants saying, I will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings, for you... Our God, O Sovereign Lord, the words are truth, and you have promised these good things to your servant. And now, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you have spoken, and when you grant a blessing to your servant, O Sovereign Lord, it is an eternal blessing. In his response, David falls on his face before God and actually brings more biblical history into it, more sovereign history, and declares him sovereign seven more times. You're in control. You've already been in control. How silly am I? And if you want to know that in David's mind, if the idea, the turn of phrase where God says to Nathan to tell him, not only will you not build me a house, but I'm already building you a house, David repeats that to God. In Warren Wiersbe's commentary, he said this on this text. God's first announcement of a coming Savior was given in Genesis 3.15, informing us that a Savior would be a human being and not an angel. In Genesis 12.3, it tells us that he would be a Jew who would bless the whole world. In Genesis 49.10, that he would come through the tribe of Judah. In this covenant, God announced to David that Messiah would come through his family. And Micah 5.2 prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem, also called the city of David, according to Matthew 2.6. Listen to how David responds to learning that the Messiah would be called the son of David. O sovereign Lord, you've got this. Sorry, I forgot that I wasn't propping you up. You're propping me up. He forgot that in last week's text, and he's forgetting it now. Last week, he flat out disobeys. This week, he just overthinks. David is being taught in last week's story of moving the ark and this week's story of waiting to build uh, God an earthly house that he may have set a path for his own life, but God was setting his steps, as Proverbs would say, as his son would say. And that it was God all along who had been calling the balls and strikes and wins and losses in his life. God had a plan for the future to redeem mankind, and he placed David and his heirs right in the middle of that plan. David just needed to trust him and ride along. It was normal in biblical times, as I mentioned, to prop up a God for a king. God is saying to David, I don't need you propping me up. I'm the real deal. And that's why David in this text calls God Jehovah Adonai, which means the sovereign Lord. That's why David calls him for the other four times or three times, Jehovah Elohim, the power of God. They are translated in both ways as the sovereign one. God in his sovereignty had kept his promise to Abraham, and now he would keep it to David. God in his power would, uh, will make it happen. And all David had to do was trust him for it, keep his eyes focused on him, and do exactly what the Lord had him to do. But that is hard. This is your daddy. This is your daddy who has adopted you and he's called you and given you life when you were spiritually dead. And now he has retooled you for, this, for his service. I want you to look at this familiar passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. You've got to take this to heart. I know this is old stuff, but it's got to come to heart because it is pivotal in how you live as a child of God. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for that. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not the reward for good things we've done. Why does that matter? So that none of us can boast about it. Why? Because we are God's masterpiece. And now he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Why am I saying this? Because David isn't that special. I mean, he's pretty special, but he is no more special than you. He is no more precious to God than you. And his work, God's work through David, although more famous, is not more significant to his plan on this planet than yours. And He has not only redeemed you and called you and drawn you and actually transformed you from death to life, raised you from spiritual deadness to life, but He has actually, according to Ephesians 2.10, retooled you for good things that He planned for you to do when? Long ago. That you don't even know what He's got planned. He didn't tell you ahead of time. You have no idea. Jehovah Adonai, the sovereign Lord, has chosen to make you His child and planned out specific responsibilities for you to do for Him for His purposes. And you may or may not even be aware of it. How can I say that? The sheep and the goats. The children of God, when they're given the kingdom of God, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of thy salvation. What do they say to Him? When did we do those things? We don't even know. It becomes such a part of our life under the direction of the Holy Spirit that raising your kids that is your task actually becomes something you don't think is spiritual. That's a mistake. But it becomes who you are. Like David, it was God who gave David rest. And while he's resting, he's looking over his kingdom going, what can I do now? When God's saying, don't do anything, go watch Blue Bloods. Enjoy. Enjoy this moment because it's about to get rowdy. God is letting him have rest. But what does he want to do? He wants to work. Jehovah Adonai, the sovereign Lord, has chosen to make us his children, and he's planned out things for us to do for his purposes, and we may or may not be aware of it. Jehovah Elohim, the God of power, will keep us and make it happen around us, to us, for his own name's sake, even when we struggle with sin. He'll still do his task. One of the dangers of being a loved-on, cared-for follower of Christ is that we can forget that he's God. That he is the one who has done all of the work to get us where we are. He is the one who maintains it and he is the one who will bring us home. That it's all him all the time, even when we struggle with sin. It's according to his plan, his will, his sovereignty, and his power. Two very different groups of people we've looked at this morning. One who wants to do things by the power of God, but for themselves. And one who wants to do something for God with the right heart, But he's forgetting himself. And that's where we live. That's where we live. I mean, it's so hard because being a parent is boring. Um, Well, some of you are saying, no, it's not. (laughs) That's the problem. Working at a diesel mechanic shop doesn't feel like a spiritual calling. being a teacher to a bunch of demon-possessed children. Being the principal of a bunch of demon-possessed adults. It doesn't feel like a calling. It feels like that's how you make money so when you get off, you can tell people about Jesus. Julie and I were in Walmart yesterday, and the guy behind us started griping, and we were just talking to the guy, and, and he started telling me, and, and he, was, he was really grumpy, so I just started talking to him to try to lighten him up a little bit. on the woman there, and, and he starts telling me that he died twice in the last year. You know, I, I listen, I don't do this very much, but I just looked at the guy and said, are you prepared for when it, finally, when it finally takes? Walmart on a Saturday afternoon with a bunch of demon-possessed Walmart shoppers. Lunch today, when the waitress pours coffee on you. The cop pulls you over because you were speeding in his area. All divine appointments. Now, it doesn't feel like a divine appointment probably doesn't, but that doesn't make it any less divine. Somewhere along the line, we started deciding that, yes, God is in control. He is sovereign, but He's not in control of every detail, and I'm, I'm just the, I, I guess I just have to feel it in order for it to be true. When did feelings become the measure of truth? That's so dangerous. Do you let your kids make decisions for themselves based upon how they feel? If you do, you're part of the majority today, but I'm telling you it's not a wise idea. Your child may want to be a specialist in Latin, Latin literature. It's probably a tough career to get a job in. Maybe not, unless, I, I, you know, I could probably find a career for you in that. Your daughter may want to be an NFL player. And yeah, me too, but the chances of her ever playing for even the Browns <laughs> are like 0000002 percent actually on a good day. I may feel like I do a better job as president than Donald Trump. And I may feel like I should be president, but it will not get me elected. You may feel like your life is being wasted. That's not your call. David's just hanging out in a time of peace. And he has a good idea. And God's response is, you're forgetting who builds what here. You're forgetting yourself. And and again, I want to be careful, and I don't want to say he's evil. He's not. I just think it's important that we remember that God is not asking us today to save the world. He's not asking us this morning to perform his super miracles. He's not in heaven going, Father, I sure hope they get it. Julie was reading uh, this week to me an article about a book that this lady wrote that teaches you how to pray no matter what your circumstances. And one of them is... If you come across somebody that's bleeding out, this is the prayer you pray to stop the bleeding. I want to be clear. That's ridiculous. That's not how this works. Because if you choose to buy that book and you keep it in your back pocket and you pull it out when somebody's bleeding, page 42, and you do that, they will die in front of you. They will die in front of you. That's what happens. Well, how do you know? Okay, I know because it's what happens every time. Sometimes God does miracles. I know Julie asked me last week, why did I decide to start using a woman's voice? Um, <laughs> so I've lost my Braveheart voice. I'm not really good at any of that anymore, so I'm doing a woman's voice. And it could just be uh, um, a really high-voiced guy. So do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Folks, we, we can't lose our heads here. We've always been struggling with losing our heads. Even David, a man after God's own heart, forgets himself. David at any point could have said, God, what do you want me to do next? And God would have said, relax and enjoy your day. But he didn't go to God. He was looking for things to do. And sometimes we overdo what we're called to do and then it turns out nothing. It turns out silly and we wonder why God didn't bless it because too often we're asking God to bless our plans instead of asking Him what His plans for us are. And you know, a lot of times when you ask God that, He doesn't tell you. If He told us everything He wanted us to do for the next 48 hours, we wouldn't need faith. If he told you what the next year would hold, you would party until your death. If he told you everything that was about to happen and how it was about to turn out, you wouldn't pray. Because that's how we're built. We're we're built to self-soothe. And if you doubt that, look at the only two people who ever were built without a sin nature, Adam and Eve, and they still rebelled. They thought God was holding secrets back. God said, You can eat from any fruit in the tree of the, the garden, any tree you want, except that one. And they thought God was holding out. It says that when Eve looked at the fruit, that she saw it and it looked delicious and it was desirable to make her wise, she took the fruit and she ate and she turned to her husband who was standing next to her. Why? Because she wanted more stuff, more information more spiritual insight because she thought she could help god little children i'm here to tell you that god wants you naive he wants you trusting he wants you walking with him he wants you raising your kids he wants you to be the best mailman you can be for the kingdom well nobody's getting saved you do it for the glory of god not for the salvation of others you do it because it's right the question last week that some of you are still wrestling with us not you us it's a little harsh to kill Uzziah. Why don't you make his hands fall off? Come on, God, lighten up a little bit. There's just one problem. God specifically said, don't do it that way. And we sort of think God's like us, grading on a curve. Well, at least they're going to church. It's not good to go to church if you're being lied to. The truth matters. And obedience matters. So here's the outline. Here's the application of the message today. Stop trying so hard. Stop seeking more. Stop looking for a feeling. Seek God. Stop fighting to defend his character. He's got this. Live it. If the people who fought to prove the creation was seven days, 24 hours a day, would invest in just living out their walk with God, our country would be different. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what he requires of you. Do justice. Serve on the jury. Vote. Do justice. Speak up for truth. Speak up for justice. Bind the wounds of those who are mistreated. Love mercy. When the iced tea ends up in your lap, laugh with her. It's just going to mean you're going to have to change your clothes. It's not that big a deal. It ruined my perfect pair of pants. That's a woman's voice. I'm just doing a high guy's voice. I don't know what it is. I make this stuff up as I go along. I'm going to have to watch Braveheart again. And then you're going to have to listen to it all the time. All of a sudden, David will be an Irish guy. No, David, he wasn't Irish. He was Scottish. The point is, I'm digressing. You have been called, empowered, and retooled for exactly what God has for you. He's not asking for you to do more. He's asking for you to live in your mission field, honoring him with every day of your life, serving him to the best of your ability, and when time is up, he'll call you home. Take a deep breath. He loves you. He's proud of you. Trust him. Let's close in prayer. Father, help us to seek your design for our life not a life that makes us feel good about ourselves. I pray, Father, that we would never sacrifice truth for bigger and better. I pray that we would be men and women of integrity and honor. You sent Jesus, our Savior and our God, according to Titus chapter 2. You sent Jesus, our Savior and our God, to redeem us from sin, and now we can go out and live in a way that honors you. Give us the desire to live a life that honors you. You have clearly told us what's expected of us to do justly, to love mercy, to humbly walk with God. And I got a feeling, at least it's my experience, that just doing that alone is going to take all my time. So I pray, Father, that we would not be like these people in John 6 that desired to feed their flesh with supernatural stuff, denying you and trying to lift themselves up. I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand what you taught David, and that is that you're the one who got us to this point. You're the one who sustains us at this point. So instead of trying to figure out what we can do bigger and better for the kingdom, we need to just look at you. As Larry Brevard says, put our eyes on the back of the rabbi and never look away. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study is gonna start in 10 minutes.